Good morning, men. It's good to, uh, to be with you. Um, somebody said, well, Todd, you finally made your debut uh, today. Man, I'm like, actually, no, I made my debut the first one uh, Thursday morning, but I just haven't had the opportunity to be up here. I did want to encourage you all with something before we dive into the passage this morning. Um, uh, you know, we talked last year about just the amazing uh, legacy that you all have established of studying God's Word on Thursday mornings, and then uh, we made this move um, to go ahead and and uh, offer the exact same thing on Wednesday nights. Um, last year, uh, we had about uh, 180 men who uh, were registered for Thursday morning amen, came on a, a regular basis. Um, I just want to encourage you, by God's grace, with the addition of the Wednesday night, my assistant Suzanne told me yesterday afternoon that as of yesterday afternoon, we had 304 men registered uh, for attending Amen Bible Study either Wednesday night or Thursday morning, which is just a huge blessing. In fact, I was talking with Fred Smith just a little bit ago. Um, I, I was hoping and praying that God would give us 30 men who would come on, on Wednesday night so we could kind of start and build out there. Um, we're now at 140-something, <laughs> and we've got space problems, and the room gets hot, and we've got all kinds of wonderful problems to try to solve, which is uh, a great blessing. So thank you. Thank you. Um, the, the pattern that you all established um, is now reaping fruit in other places as well, and we're really grateful uh, for you doing that. So we're in Genesis 4 uh, this morning. We're reading the whole chapter. Um, and before we dive into that passage, I guess it was back in April. I probably got the, 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 the letter in March, but back in April, so it was April 1st actually, um, I had the, uh, um, I guess, privilege that many of you have had, and like many of you, um, I drove down to downtown, to the downtown courthouse to respond to my summons to serve uh, in a jury, or at least to sit in that giant room and waiting to serve in the jury. Um, Lynn said, are you worried about that? And I said, no, I'm not worried. Uh, you know, I'm probably not going to get chosen. They have so many people there. Probably not going to get chosen. And if, I, if they do select me to go to a court, there's no way I'm sitting on a jury. I'm a pastor. Like, I mean, it's going to be a done deal right then. Um, well, I, I either won or lost the jury lottery, depending on how you see it. Um, not, I, 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 not only did I end up, um, did I end up uh, on a jury, um, but, I, but I ended up on a, on a jury for a first-degree murder trial, and the judge said, no, you're going to be sequestered. And I was like, oh, awesome, until Saturday. Great. Uh, Lynn said, how did, you know, I, so I go home, instead of being home early in the afternoon, I'm home, Lynn's like, well, how'd it go? I'm like, well, I'm packing my bags, and I'll see you Saturday. I can't even, hardly, I don't even know I'll be able to talk with you. She said, how did that happen? I said, I don't know. The judge called me Reverend Erickson from the get-go, and I still, like, no questions were asked of me, and I'm, I was wondering, I wanted to raise my hand at the end and say, hey, we're all aware I'm a pastor, right? You don't want me on this jury, but apparently both the defense and the prosecution apparently wanted me on that jury. It actually ended up being one of the most moving experiences, of, certainly of, of the last few years of my life. Um, the, the case was, was very disturbing. Um, some of you may remember this, that in May of 2016, um, on 2nd Street, right, right next to Texas Day Brazil, and right across from the Flying Saucer, on a Saturday night in May, very busy street, crowded with cars, 
crowded with people, a young man uh, in his car uh, grabbed an assault rifle from the back of his back seat, pointed it out the window, and shot at some teenagers who were on the, on the sidewalk and killed Manisha Johnson, who was 18 years old and who was going to graduate from high school that next Saturday. And that was the case. And as we sat there and listened to uh, both sides present, present um, prosecution and the defense, most of the witnesses, certainly at the beginning, were just kids. And it was really, it was really tough and sad to, to, to be in that place and to experience um, that depth of damage and that depth of sadness. On Friday of that week, um, there was a surprise in that the defendant, this 19-year-old boy, the defendant was going to take the stand. And I happened to be sitting, I happened to be sitting right where Brad is, right on the edge of the, of the jury box. And the, uh, the, the place for the witness was like literally right here. So I was this close as this young man uh, um, tried to defend himself. And as I listened to him, I just became overwhelmed with emotion for two reasons. One, the look on his face was a face that was so desperately afraid of his shame, so desperately afraid of being disrespected, and so longing for someone to affirm him and completely backed into a corner. And I told my wife later, I said, the, the thing that overwhelmed me is I've seen that face before. And it wasn't on some, you know, inner city guy with an assault rifle. No, I've seen that same exact face on a 13-year-old boy, East Memphis boy at a, at a, at a um, uh, youth conference who'd been backed into a corner and was feeling like he had no way out. So not only that, I was, I was overcome with emotion because what in the world? What, why was a 19-year-old boy here? Who was taking care of this guy when he was 10? And probably the thing that was most overwhelming for me was I saw in him and in his voice and all of that, I saw myself. I saw my, my, the own darkness in my heart. When, when I fear, when I feel shame, when I feel threatened, the desire to defend at all costs. The, the, fire, the desire to protect myself at all costs. And you wonder yourself when you're in a moment like that, how did we as a, as a, as a people, as human beings, as a person, how do we get to that spot? How do we get to that place? Genesis 4 is going to show us that. Genesis 4 is going to peel back for us some of, uh, some of the depth of our depravity. Um, but at the same time, reveal the grace that Christ has for us. Let's read Genesis 4 and dive into God's word this morning. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. 
The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahuzahel, and Mahuzahel fathered Methushahel, and Methushahel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, excuse me, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Make sure we have a context before we dive in on this passage. The context here is, is, is right after them, uh, or, or, or in, in light of them leading the garden. We don't know if it was right after a few years. We, didn't know, we don't know how many years even it took place between the birth, between verses, uh, verse 1 and 2. And when we pick up in verse 3, God's Word doesn't tell us that because God's Word is most uh, intent on making sure we understand both our sin and grace, not necessarily understand all the details of everything historically um, that wouldn't matter to the issues of our sin and grace. Nevertheless, these things are true, and this is not simply a story or an allegory. It is God's Word. It is actually what happened. And so in, uh, in the context of having been 
sent from the garden, but still remembering Genesis 3.15. That there was going to be, as God said, from your offspring will come redemption. So Adam and Eve, and Eve maybe especially thought, from, from my offspring will come redemption. Now, you've got to imagine this. I, I didn't think about this until just last week and thought, oh yeah, that would have been weird. How weird would it have been for Eve to have a baby? Nobody had a baby, right? All of a sudden you're like, oh, whoa, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden you're holding a child. And she thinks, wait a second, I know God created Adam, man. I know God created me, female. I've created another man. Now she understands it's from God, but she's amazed. She's absolutely amazed. God has granted me another Adam, another man, and she's holding this baby. And I, I'm almost sure that she had in her mind the promise of Genesis 3.15. From your offspring will come the redemption from this serpent. And she's wondering, maybe not that this is the Messiah, but just wondering, okay, this baby, this baby that God has given me, not only is it a, another man, but this baby is the offspring. It's, it's, it's somehow this is connected to God's promise. And here's the plot twist. She was holding a murderer. She was holding a murderer. God's word goes on to tell this amazing story. And we see, first of all, uh, Roman number one, man's descending depravity. The fall has happened. And we're going to see, first of all, verses one through eight, the descending depravity in an individual's heart, and particularly in Cain's heart. Now, I thought for a long time how I would break up this passage because what you have is you have the depravity in Cain's heart and then the grace that God has for Cain. And then the depravity in the generations to come and the grace that God has for the generations to come. But what I've decided to do this morning is to talk for the first half of our time about the depravity in Cain's heart and the depravity in the generations and then to talk about the uh, depravity, uh, excuse me, the grace that Christ has uh, God has for Cain and the grace that God has for the generations. So we're going to take it in those pieces, kind of like A and C and B and D. So first of all, letter A, the depravity, sending depravity in the heart, particularly in Cain's heart. A lot of commentators speculate on why in the world uh, Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted, but Abel's sacrifice was. And there has been, maybe you've even had this taught, maybe this has even been an idea for you, it, it certainly was one that, that I felt like was given to me years ago, uh, was that, well, Cain, uh, his sacrifice was fruit and grain, but Abel's sacrifice was an animal sacrifice, the blood. Now that matches, that matches what God wants in an offering. And so uh, Cain didn't give what God wanted in an offering. Only that doesn't actually work, because if you read on in Genesis, there's other offerings to God that were not dead animals, but were offerings of fruit and grain. And even in the book of Deuteronomy, when you see the law explained, uh, there are offerings of fruit and grain. So it, it can't be that, that that offering doesn't count. It has to be something else. And I think we find out what that something else is as we see the whole passage here and the attitude of Cain. And then also, when you read about uh, Cain and Abel in Hebrews chapter 11, you see that, that God says 
that Abel's sacrifice was offered in faith. And you can certainly see that in the way things are presented here in Genesis 4. Abel offers the firstborn of the flock and the fat portions. He offers the very best. There is something about humility and something about understanding the lordship of God in Abel's worship. Cain's worship just seems to be going through the motions. Clearly, they had learned from their parents, we are to offer to God. Abel was understanding at a heart level a humility before the Lord. Cain was like, hey, I'm going to go through the motions. I'm supposed to do this. I got some fruit. I'm going to offer it to God. In fact, really what Cain was doing, he was was prescribing what he thinks he ought to do in worship to God. Isn't that something we can find ourselves doing sometimes? Where we're frustrated with the pastor or our church or whatever and think, well, you know, this is how I think we ought to worship. Maybe even when we offer our tithes and offerings, we make up in our own minds how we ought to do that. Well, I, you know, maybe you thought this. Well, I don't make, I don't make hardly any money at all and I've got debt to pay, so I don't think God wants me to, to bring an offering to Him. Or maybe God has blessed you beyond what you ever imagined. And you think to yourself, well, if I gave 10% of what I make a year, my church would have no clue what to do with that, so I'm not going to do it. And when we we start prescribing worship to God, Cain was deciding, this is how I think it ought to be. And you know what? This is enough. And because his his offering was not one of faith, was not one of, of humility and submission, it wasn't accepted. It wasn't accepted. And when it wasn't accepted... He became ticked off. He got so angry at God, the text says that his face showed it. That his face was downcast. I mean, he, his anger was intense because he's like, you walk around, you see him, you're like, wow, that guy's ticked off. And Cain clearly, clearly was ticked at God. Hey, listen, I gave you this. What's your problem with me? You see Cain being the kind of captain of his own soul, don't you? Just seeing, I, I, I'm a self-made man. I got this. And I can't believe God has a problem with me. Well, God engages Cain, asks him about his sacrifice. It's interesting to note that Cain doesn't respond at all. He doesn't even want to talk to God. God talks to him, tells him, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Your anger over this sacrifice, your your pride, sin is crouching at your door. Cain has no response. I don't want to talk to God. I'm not interested in what God has to say. I know what's important. I know what I need to do, and, and I don't want to hear that. And what does he do? He goes out. And he commits a heartless murder. In fact, in fact, if you look um, in the Hebrew, the sentence is even shorter and even more plain than we have in our, in our English translations. I mean, it's just, it's like he has no regard at all. No regard for human life. 
and he, and he murders, and he murders an image bearer. Can't lose sight of that when we, when, we, when we think about the killing of someone, regardless of who it is. Killing of someone outside of justice, outside of justice instituted by a state, the killing of someone is the taking of the life of an image bearer. As uh, Kent Hughes, pastor and, and theologian, says, when you look at God's word, blood and life belong to God. And so the killing of someone challenges the possession of God. Challenges his right of possession. The taking of a life challenges God's right of possession. Or as Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, when we murder, when we take a life, it is a hatred, it's an act of hatred towards God for creating someone who is in my way. For creating someone who is in my way. And you see this, this prideful, I'm going I'm to prescribe what worship is. Yeah, I'm worshiping you, God. And then anger that God won't accept his sacrifice. Not wanting to talk to God while God talks to him. And then it, God says, sin is crouching at your door. And that... And he steps outside the fellowship of God and, and, and sin grabs a hold of him and he kills his own brother. He murders his brother. Now we sit here probably this morning and probably no one in here has ever murdered anybody. And it's easy to think, isn't it? Always, when we're talking about murder, gosh, that's terrible. Boy, that, that sin really led to a deep place. That, that darkness in Cain's heart really led to a bad place. Thank goodness I'm not there. <laughs> but what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? He said, you've heard it say, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you've ever had hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've committed murder. Truly referencing not just the Old Testament uh, law, but referencing Genesis 4. If you've ever had hatred in your heart towards your brother, if you had hatred in your heart towards another image bearer of God, where you've thought, that person is in my way. And we too are guilty of that. As guilty as that 19-year-old boy who took out an assault rifle on 2nd Street and fired into a crowd of teenagers. Jesus says we are as guilty as that. Well, not only do we see the descending depravity after the fall in Genesis 3 of a heart, but we go on in, in verses 17 through 24, so we'll come back later to, to verses uh, 9 through 16. In verses 17 through 24... We see the, the descending depravity in, in the generations, in the generations there. There's a conversation that takes place. God pronounces a curse on, uh, on uh, Cain. And, uh, and, and Cain goes out and actually uh, he goes out and he doesn't accept God's judgment or curse. He's sent into the land of Nod. Nod literally means place of wandering. He's told you will wander alone. You, you won't be killed, but you will wander alone. And in his pride, Cain says, no, I won't. No, I won't. Not only does he 
take a wife, but he ceases to wander. He builds, not really a city, better translation there would be a settlement. He builds a settlement, maybe a, a town. And he's still prideful, because what does he do? He has a son, and he names the city after his son. He's going to say, I'm going to make sure I have a legacy. God, you say I'm going to be a wanderer? You say I'm going to be alone? No, I'm not. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to show you. That issue of legacy, boy, it drives us certainly as men, doesn't it? Really drives us at times. It can be a great temptation to lead to, to dark places. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, watched uh, Monday night uh, Bluff City Law, the new TV show here in Memphis. Um, I found it, I don't know if you found it, if you did watch it, I don't know if you found it difficult to, to follow the plot like I did, not because the plot was bad, but because I kept saying to my wife, Lynn, like, oh, hey, there's Rum Boogie Cafe. Oh, hey, there's Four Corners. Oh, hey, there, you know. I mean, I was paying more attention to what was in the background and what people I might see than I was, I'm like, oh, wait, i got to pay attention to the dialogue. You know, and you go, thank goodness it was a good show. I was a little nervous. I was a little nervous that, you know, it was going to be kind of a lame TV show. And, uh, and then people start criticizing not just the show, but my favorite city in the whole world. So I'm really happy that it actually was a good show. If you watch it at the end, there's this dialogue between these two lawyers. And there's this one lawyer who's trying to get this guy out of prison who he is convinced has been wrongly accused of murder. Only when he goes and meets the guy, the guy says, no, 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 I did it. I confessed. And they're trying to figure out why in the world this guy is insisting that he did it when all the proof said that he did not do it. And as this dialogue takes place, this one lawyer says to this younger lawyer, says, listen, every time people come into my office, maybe it starts about money, maybe it starts about rights, but it quickly moves to legacy. That's what drives everybody. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want my name in any way to be shamed. I want to, I want to make things, I want when people speak of me or speak of my family, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be shamed. That's what's happening here with Cain. He is making sure that he makes a name for himself. So he denies God's judgment. And this is frustrating. He still prospers. Sometimes I feel like Asaph in Psalm 72, Psalm 72, 73, where it's like, God, I'm obeying you. And it's going hard for me. <laughs> and these dudes over here have no regard for you. And it's going great for them. Can we do something about that? <laughs> Enoch rebels against God and he still prospers. It shows the, the, his descendants. And, and boy, his descendants end up creating some legacy, right? He's got, he's got one descendant who when it comes to establishing civilization on the earth, he's got one descendant who is the pioneer of domesticating animals. That's a cool legacy. He's got another descendant who's the pioneer of, of music and art. That's a pretty cool legacy. He's got, a, he's got another descendant who's the pioneer of working with iron and, and working with, with tools and, and clearly from the way that we see Lamech responding and, and honestly just Tubal Cain's name, he's, he's a hyphenated name, right? He's, it's not Jabel, uh, Jubal, and Tubal. That, would, that makes sense, right? He's Tubal Cain. Why is he Tubal Cain? Probably in reference to his murdering ancestor in regards to weapons. This is a guy who made 
weapons. There's some legacy here that seems almost unfair. And then comes Lamech. I'm so thankful that God's word has given us a glimpse into the, the, the generational depravity. Because we've gone from what we've seen in the heart, and now we see Lamech, and man, this guy is a piece of work. In Lamech's uh, poem there, or song, we see some pretty disturbing things. We see, first of all, a man who was intent on humiliating women. He takes two wives. That's not what was prescribed by God in Genesis 2, was it? Genesis 2 makes it clear. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to one woman, and they shall become one flesh. This guy is like, ah, I'm going to have as many women as I want. And in, in doing so, he humiliates both his wives because he goes against what God has for him. Not only that, he's clearly abusive. Can you imagine? Can you? I can't even imagine saying to my wife, hey, listen, Lynn, sit down and listen to me as I boast about my life, right? And this guy's, my wife would say, yeah, you're done. <laughs> this guy's clearly abusive to his wives. He's violent. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me. And actually, when it says young man there, a clearer translation would be boy. I've killed a child for striking me. Open violence. And then completely unjust. Cain's venge, uh, revenge was, or vengeance was sevenfold. That's reference to what God said. Listen, if anybody takes Cain's life, my vengeance will be sevenfold. What does that mean? That God was going to do it seven times? No, sevenfold is, is, means perfection. It means it will be a perfect response. It will be an appropriate response. It will be a just response. The punishment will fit the crime. Lamech will have none of that. No. No, no, no. You do that to me, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy your family. I'm going to forget justice. It's interesting to note here, there's only one other place where seven and 77 are put next to each other. Remember what that is, right? When Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? Jesus says, no. Seventy-seven times. Jesus is clearly referencing Genesis 4 and saying, Lamech was like that? The redeemed are like this. The redeemed are like this. Completely unjust. And yet here's what mankind has become in just five generations from the garden. The darkness of our own hearts, the darkness of generational sin, where we could end up with a 19-year-old boy killing an 18-year-old girl from his car on a busy street on a Saturday night where you and I can hate our brothers, harbor hatred towards even brothers in Christ. But... As always, even in Genesis 4, there is amazing, amazing good news. Remember in Romans 5, when, when Paul is speaking, he's spoken about the depravity of our sin in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. And then in Romans 5, he's beginning to talk about Adam's sin and Christ's redemption. 
And he says this in verse 20 of of chapter 5 of Romans. It says this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I'm telling you, brothers, right here in Genesis 4, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Do not miss this. We see God's increasing grace, Roman uh, numeral 2, first of all, letter A, in the midst of sin, verses 9 through 16. Notice, first of all, the mercy and grace that God gives simply by engaging Cain. Cain is angry because his sacrifice has not been accepted. And what does God do? God doesn't say, you know what? Your pride and your anger deserve death, which it did. But what does God do instead? God engages Cain. God speaks to him. In his mercy, he warns him. He says, sin is crouching at your door. The image there is of you being in a safe place, in a safe house. And just outside your door, just outside your front door, is a demon ready to grab you. It reminds us of what it says in James chapter 1, when uh, James writes about um, how sin works. Sin works this way. It, it, It starts within our own hearts. We are sons of Adam. We are broken. Our temptations are here. As we remain in the fellowship of God, in the fellowship of the body of Christ, in submission and obedience to Him, we can rule over those broken desires that are in us. But oh brother, when we step outside the door of that, sin is crouching there. And sin just latches on to what's already a desire in our heart, it says in James. In fact, the the word that's used in James is the word for, for fishing lure. I think I've shared this with you before. My, my grandfather, my great uncle, they loved to fish up there on uh, Lake Mills, just between Madison, Wisconsin and Rockford, Illinois. I remember going up there as a little boy to the cabin. It might have been the smallest cabin that ever existed. Um, I don't know how we all fit in there. But we'd go out fishing, and, and I'd open up that tackle box, and there'd be all these little compartments, and there were some of the coolest fishing lures I've ever seen. And we were never allowed to use any of them, ever. I say, Grandpa, can we use this one? He's like, no, uh, we, uh, we, that won't work. We, we, catch, we catch fish with worms on this lake. I'm like, well, this is a dumb lake. Like, I want, where's the lake where we can use this thing? You know? That's what I wanted to attach. He's like, no, you don't. And he was teaching me, hey, listen, you catch, you catch different fish with different lures. And I've thought forever when I read James, I think it when I, when I see this, this sentence, sin is crouching at your door. Hey, Satan has a tackle box and there's a compartment that says Todd and there's a certain lure for him. And brothers, there's a certain lure for you. And all that lure does is it taps into what's already in your heart. Taps into your evil desires within you. But in mercy and grace, God says to Cain, I'm warning you, He offers a chance for repentance. He's opening the door for repentance. And then even after Cain murders his brother, God comes to him again, just like He did to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned, and God just didn't reject him, said, I want nothing to do with you. He came to talk to them. In the same way, He comes to talk to Cain. What amazing grace that God would engage a sinner, offering him a chance for repentance. Cain says, Cain lies. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. God says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. In fact, the word in Hebrew is really screaming. Your 
your brother's blood is screaming. What's it screaming for? It's screaming for justice because God is just. Screaming for justice. But God in His grace is trying to get him to repent. Now he curses in verses 11 through 16. He curses. And it's the, it's the same word that's used for the serpent. What a, what, a, what a deep and disastrous thing for Cain. And only then does Cain feel emotion, right? Now all of a sudden he's upset. But he's only upset because he's like, well, if I go out there, people are going to kill me. I know some of you are thinking, Where, how are these other people? Where are these other people? Where did they come from? Well, well, we don't know if this, is, this has been 30 years or if it's been 150 years. So it could be multiple generations. You realize later on, we're going to read that, that uh, these first men and women lived hundreds of years, therefore populating the earth. He says, they're going to kill me. God, in His mercy and grace, says, no, I will protect your life. I will make it so that you won't be killed. And not only does He allow Cain to live, He allows him to prosper. Brothers, don't miss in this passage the unbelievable patience and mercy of a gracious God. And please, in your own life, may we not miss the unbelievable patience and mercy of a gracious God who is long-suffering towards us. The God of Genesis 4 is the same God you worship today. And though the darkness exists in your heart and in my heart, there is a long-suffering and a gracious God. God is that then and God is that now. What does God do in response to this generational sin? Look in verses 25 and 26, the last two verses of the chapter. This really is amazing. We see these five generations later that is producing men like Lamech who humiliate women, who abuse their wives, who boast outrightly of their violence, who are completely unjust and boast about that as well. And what is happening is it lost? Is it, is it all lost? Certainly, Eve would have wondered. The promise was supposed to come through my offspring. But my firstborn is a murderer who's killed my secondborn. Where's the offspring? Where's God's promise? It's right there in verse 25. God has not forgotten. He grants Eve Seth. Seth literally means God has granted. God has granted. Eve recognizes, oh, thank you, Lord, you have not forgotten your promise of Genesis 3.15. It is not lost. The promise continues. It's the exact same word when she says offspring there in verse 25, my offspring. That's the exact same Hebrew word of the, uh, where it's translated offspring in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, exact same Hebrew word. She's recognizing, oh, God has not forgotten the promise of Genesis 3.15. It's still going to be fulfilled. The grace of God to do that and not just destroy everyone. And then the grace that God would call forth in the generations, something like verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Literally, it means to proclaim the name of the Lord, to, to worship. It's interesting to note here that the generational legacy of Cain had some pretty cool pioneers in technology. But the generational legacy of Seth 
with some pioneers in worship. Oh men, as we pray for our sons and daughters, our grandsons, our granddaughters, our great-grandsons and great-granddaughters, let our prayers not primarily be, oh, please make them accomplish something great in this world. May our prayers be, oh Lord, please make them pioneers of worship. May that be the legacy, God, of my family. And my sons and daughters worship. May that be the priority, not where they graduate from college, not what job they have, but that they walk with God. May that be the grace that God gives to us. Well, in conclusion, brothers, I've thought about this. I've thought, what happened to, to Cain? Did, was he condemned forever to hell? Was, was Cain beyond the redemption and forgiveness of God? In the same way, we might wonder, he's a 19-year-old boy who fired an assault rifle on 2nd Street out of his car into a, into, a, into a group of teenagers. Is he beyond redemption? Is he beyond forgiveness? Praise the Lord, no. No one is beyond forgiveness. No one is beyond redemption. Was Abel, I mean, was Cain redeemed? We don't know. We don't know, but probably not because the way he's talked about in the New Testament, talking about the way of Cain. But was he beyond redemption? No, because no one is. And brothers, listen to me, neither are you. You are not beyond forgiveness. You are not beyond restoration. You are not beyond in any area of your life. In any area of your life, you are not beyond the redemption of God. God's grace, God's grace increases. It abounds. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Turn lastly in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I told you that speaks about Cain in Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, excuse me, about Abel and Cain in Hebrews chapter 11 speaking about the sacrifice. But it also speaks about Abel in Hebrews chapter 12. Speaking about the Old Testament and the redemption that was there and the, and the, and the terrifying uh, place of being there at the bottom of Mount Sinai and seeing the flashes of lightning and seeing God there. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on but says, listen, there's a better covenant. There's a better covenant. There's a better covenant. And he says in verse 22, but you have come, Hebrews chapter 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to numeral angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to, the, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous who are made perfect. You've come to all these better things. And look at verse 24. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What, did the, what word did the blood of Abel speak? The blood of Abel spoke, justice must be done. Christ's blood is a better word. And it speaks, justice has been served. And that's the reality that you who have faith in Christ live under. 
the better word spoken by the blood of Christ, which is this. It cries out to God. It cries out to God today. The blood of Christ cries out to God today for you. Justice has been served. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and the truth of your word. Thank you that in a place like Genesis 4, not only can we peel back the darkness of our own hearts and even seeing generational sin, but in the midst of that, Father, that we might, even in Genesis 4, see your increasing grace. Oh, praise you, Father, that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Seal these words to our hearts and help us to live like those who live under the sprinkled blood of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.